So for those who, um, I realize even in my prayer, maybe I should have explained part of what I was praying for. But for those of you who received my announcements, uh, you, you got the memo that today uh, I'm going to be joining, as far as I know, hundreds, I don't know how many hundreds, and it depends on how many continue to do so. I know in the past it's been hundreds of other pastors. Uh, by preaching a sermon focused on a biblical sexual ethic and God's good design for marriage. That's kind of the, the broad guideline that they give. Uh, this time, uh, every year, about this time, beginning two years ago on January 8th. Uh, and that was when Bill C-4 became law in Canada, criminalizing the practice of, quote-unquote, conversion therapy, which is loosely, and again, I just want to remind you, what we're talking about. Uh, in, in this bill, conversion therapy is defined as a practice, treatment, or service which is designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, which means uh, the gender identity at birth, there's, you're going to need some uh, addic- uh, um, urban dictionary to understand some of these things. Uh, C, to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to that person at birth. Uh, D, to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, and so on. Um, in other words, to put off the old self and to try to put on a new self in Christ. Like it, it, um, the preamble of the, of the bill states that the spreading, uh, this is what the bill up, leading up to it says, it says that spreading the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, which again, just, just identifying with being a man because you were born a male, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, to teach that these are to be preferred over other sexual orientations gender identities and gender expressions is based on myths and stereotypes and causes harm to society. So that's, that's what was brought forward and, and again, written. It's in the books. It's, it's legislation. And, uh, and this is not only a stealthy attack upon the Church of Christ, but again, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, it's, it's a, a, an attack upon our sovereign Lord whose image we've been created uh, to, to manifest in the world, uh, male and female. Having considered the monumental nature of the advancement of this kind of antichrist legislation, I, I believe with each passing year of hearing very little or any, uh, or any really thing of the consequences of this law. I think since then I haven't heard of anything, you know, actually of this law being used uh, or invoked. Some might say it makes it, it, it kind of dulls the, dulls the need to, to say anything then. And it's like, okay, let's move on. And I would actually, it, I, last year I, I mentioned in my message, I was, I was kind of wrestling with, do I continue to do this every year? I don't know. And I realized um, the more this goes on, actually, I think the more important, the, the later we get from when this date, when this was passed, the more important it is to come back to it and be reminded of what has taken place. That, uh, to call the church to attention to, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, to be watchful, to stand firm in faith, to act like men and to be strong. And it's because, I believe, the design of this kind of legislation for the present moment is not, it's, it's not carried out a full frontal assault on the church in the present. And the enemy knows that at the present hour, such a persecution would only serve to awaken the church of Christ. Um, so you're not, I, I'm convinced you're not going to see that right now. Um, I think that's the last thing that they would want to do. At this stage, the goal of this kind of law is to simply make you comfortable with the, the new status quo. That's the present goal. Like the frog in the boiling pot who cannot sense the slowly rising temperature. We need to get used to this new temperature for a bit before they can turn it up again. And thereby disarming the church's weaponry and power in the world, which is her faith and obedience 
and proclamation of the word of God. And so this is the very thing we must be diligent to do. Not only on Sunday, on one Sunday of the year, of course, but my prayer is that it would serve as a consistent reminder and call to, pers- to persist in the daily spiritual battle which presently surrounds us. And is, again, it's, it's coming to us and in, in, into our homes whether we, um, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so I, I, the call is to acknowledge it. Let's, let's shine a light on it. Um, and so one way to, rem, uh, to remain diligent in this is to never grow weary or bored of stating the obvious. And so this is why today I decided to hone in specific, on the specific sin of homosexuality for this year's message. And we're going to be going to, again, one that we Christians tend to not want to go to. And so I thought, well, let's that's, that's just do that. Let's open our Bibles to it. And Leviticus chapter 20 Verse 13. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 is the specific text. And uh, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin, I want to read just the general section for you, uh, just, to, just for the sake of time here too. I'm, I'm going to begin in verse 10, but I want to note uh, the prohibition of child sacrifice that is mentioned before is not disconnected from the sexual sins that he's calling out in the verses we're about to read. It's, there's a reason why they're put together. And so we might even, that, that might be something we come back to next year. What is... What does child sacrifice have to do with, with the sin of sexual perversion? Um, but we're going to begin in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 together. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion, and their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter, or his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and they shall bear his iniquity." There he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he is made naked for her fountain. And she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. I I kept reading because I wanted to get to this point for the broader context. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make for yourself... Uh, yourselves detestable 
by beast or by bird or anything which, with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. This is the word of the Lord. May it be received as such. You may be seated. As I said, as I was just as I was pondering where to go with this this message this for this year, I decided to hone in specifically to the sin of homosexuality. While the insanity of the transgender agenda has raised a cultural alarm across, I find across many party lines that something is seriously going is seriously wrong here and it's it's kind of it's crossed the line that that many people who are totally fine with the current there it's it's a little bit too much nobody whether liberal or conservative conservative nobody would dare consider like in light of that fact and 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 those signs of common sense appearing Nobody in the political realm, but certainly, but, or in the business, the corporate, the, the public sphere, our schools, the institutions, nobody would dare consider the fact that our society's acceptance and celebration and defense of homosexuality is really where this all kind of comes out of and, and begins. I, and I, I think... Um, you know, I, I also mentioned last year, I do believe the acceptance of no-fault divorce and the attack that that posed on God's design for marriage. I mentioned that. It's kind of where we went last year in Matthew 19 because that's where, exactly where our text brought us to last year. And I do believe that's even more foundational to the, to the rot to, of, of, of how, how the enemy has gone about this and how we've just let ourselves go and how God has let us go uh, about this. But I specifically addressed that, as I said, last year. So, so today we're going to briefly be reminded of what ought to be obvious to every Christian here, and yet has become a relic of the past in our culture at, at large. So maybe you're sitting here today and asking, I don't need to be, like, I know this. And I'm saying that's why it, it's good that one, that when was the last time you've heard a, a sermon specifically uh, identifying and homosexuality as being wrong and, and applying the gospel of Christ to it. We, we, there's a danger in just assuming we all know or that we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're past that. We don't need to worry about that. And so that's, that's essentially my, my, my goal today with, with us. Um, and again, it is in identifying that if you really think about our culture and it might expose how immersed maybe you have been in our culture that we don't bat much of an eye when it comes to just the idea of same-sex marriage. Between two people, right, it's consensual. They love it. It's not hurting anybody else. And as Christians, that makes us feel uneasy and maybe to a degree, but it's like, yeah, okay. Like, it's, it's, I don't remember when, that, when the same-sex marriage was passed. Was it 20 years ago now? Early 2000s? Yeah. I think it was early 2000s, but I mean, I could be wrong. I, I was a young kid, I remember, when it was, uh, when it was passed. Um, so some of our kids here, they haven't known anything else. Um, and so this is why it's important, again, just to come back and to, just to, to declare, what does God say about, what does God have to say about these things? And, and what is, again, um, what is the hope, not only that God offers to people who are, are trapped in these things, but what is the hope that the world is, is, is actually is trying to withhold and keep these people from when they put laws like this in place that say uh, that we can't basically teach script the, what the Bible says about sexuality. So we're turning to Le- Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. 
Now, just as a, a, just briefly a broad context, context, in Leviticus chapter 17 to 27, emphasizes as the whole, I mean, holiness is the theme of Leviticus. Holiness being uh, set apart, um, being God, being called out and to God as his uh, own uh, people. And it's... Um, that they must be holy because God is holy. Which, by the way, uh, Peter repeats concerning the new covenant people of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And, and so the, the Levitical code, though, is given in these chapters to make Israel the city on the hill that God chose and delivered them to become. And he does so by extending their commitments to the Lord beyond the realm of mere private devotion... And not, nor even in fervent participation in public worship alone. But to include a total way of life. That's what he's doing here with the Levitical Code. That it, that it would involve every aspect of our existence in God's world. Ranging all, from the bedroom, in the home, and the community, and the economy, and all of it. That God, that he wants all of it. And so as we zero in on our text today in chapter 20... Leviticus 20 is very similar in content to, just to Leviticus 18, just for you to note. Uh, many of the same sexual offenses listed, are listed in Leviticus 18 are then repeated in Leviticus chapter 20. With Leviticus 20, more attention is given to the punishments. That's, you don't see that in 18, so there's a, there is a bit of a shift of uh, the punishments being meted out for those violations. But the repetition of much of the content of of 18, again in 20, stresses the gravity of the issues being discussed. As does the twofold mention of the death penalty by stoning at at the beginning of chapter 20 in verse 2, as well as the end at verse 27. And so we begin, again, we're just going to look at verse 13 specifically. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And if if there is a basic outline here, it's going to be naming the sin, shaming the sin, and then killing the sin. Naming the sin, shaming the sin, and then killing the, the, the sin. We see beginning in verse in those, the, the opening line of verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman. There's some debate over whether Christians should use, even, even use the term homosexuality, uh, as that is somewhat recent in history, um, or, as compared to the terms of sodomy, or, and the King James, you'll see, uh, abusers of themselves with mankind. Um, and there's, there's other terms as well. Uh, you know, which, what, what ought to be employed. And I think what matters is that there is a mutual understanding of the specific sin being condemned, of, of being able to identify what is the sin here. And so I think it's interesting that as we come to Leviticus 20.13, partly why I chose it as well, is that the meaning of this text is really as clear as you can get. Uh, instead of giving us a single word... Or a phrase for us to then define and try and explain this is what is the sin. Uh, the Lord literally gives us, He's giving us not a word, He's giving us the definition. What is specifically is He talking about? He's describing the act itself so as to leave no room for doubt as to what is being condemned. The man, and we even see even further, you might not notice it, you should in the English even, where you see the man male distinction. Uh, in, the, in the word choice there that is made, and it reflects the Hebrew, uh, that, that, uh, that difference there. Basically, it says, if a man lies with a male, so uh, male there is the word zakar, and it carries more of an emphasis on biological sex than the typical word used for man, which is ish. And so, so when, and in English, male, that's just, when you use that, that's usually more the focus uh, of the context. You're referring to the biology. 
And it eliminates the possibility of any kind of obscurity as to, again, what is being said here when it says if a man lies with a male, as he lies with a woman. The clarity of this text is also helpful uh, to interpreting the meaning of a couple texts in the New Testament that are in the New Testament that are admittedly a little more. They're not that obscure, but they're more obscure than Leviticus is in their usage of the Greek. So I'll just point you there. Just just again, this is part of this is equipping you so that you know because you're going to hear these kind of things. Probably not even from unbelievers, probably from churches, probably from other Christians trying to defend uh, homosexuality. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, of course, it's, it's a well-known verse. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. First uh, Timothy chapter one verse ten also has the same reference to, to men who practice homosexuality. The ESV here actually translates two different Greek words. If you have the ESV, there's probably a note there, but it's two different words: malakos and arsenikoites. Malakos and arsenikoites. Hence, in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and the King James has a difference as well you get the more literal, literal translation where he says, nor if the effeminate, malakos, nor homosexuals, arsenikoites. Many modern scholars debate the precise meaning of that, that second word, arsenikoites. But this is where our text in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, sheds light on Paul's use of arsenikoites in the Greek uh, New Testament. If you were to look at the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 reads, Whoever shall lie with arsenos coitain, as, as a male lies with a woman. Does that sound familiar to you? Arsenos coitain. Paul is clearly using the phrase arsenikoites to bring in those two root words used in Leviticus and putting them together to coin that phrase in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 9. He's, he's, he's pointing them to what God said right from the beginning there. However, the vast majority who dispute this text will not do so on the basis of its meaning. And, I, and so I'm referring back to Leviticus 20 again. If there are going to be people who dispute it, it's not going to be on its meaning. As I said, it's, it's pretty clear. It's, little, it's, it gets, it's too clear cut to, to have any meaningful argument with. So rather, they will focus their arguments against its relevance, right? its application to us today. Either as having no relevance to the new covenant church. That's the Old Testament. Right? It doesn't matter. Like it's not, it doesn't matter in the new covenant age, or as having no relevance to the civil realm today. Right. So maybe we'll get a lot of Christians who will agree it's sin. We shouldn't practice it. But you know what? What happens in the privacy of your home is what happens in the privacy of your home. That the, the law, the government, the, there's no there's no place for that in uh, in the civil realm. And so I'm, I'm going to address both of those. Uh, Oppositions regarding the relevance of this law within the context of the new covenant. We again, I, I, I'll, we need to come back to this often in terms of how do we understand the relationship of the old and the new testaments. And um, but we, we need to understand that Christ came not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. That's Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, verse seventeen, I believe. Most evangelicals today believe that that means that the Old Testament commandments are no longer authoritative unless the specific law is reiterated by Christ or by his, or the apostles in the New Testament. So basically, the Old Testament is it's right it's gutted it's from its authority because now we have the New, and we don't need to pay attention to the Old unless unless that specific law 
was, re- was said again in the New Testament, or Christ mentions it again. Um, and it basically makes the Old Testament functionally irrelevant to us today, uh, except to be used as a history textbook, as a, to give some context and to fill in the story. Where, and, and, and I will say that, I should mention, um, I think at one point in my, even in my ministry, not here with you, but there was a time where I held that view. So it's not like that's crazy or way out there. That, that is, is a very common view that is held today. And that's how people will basically just not have to really consider or give any account for what is said in the Old Testament. Whereas I believe all scripture, which was primarily the Old Testament at the time when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3, I believe all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that is that we assume the continuation of the authority of the specific Old Testament directives, except where the New Testament explicitly fulfills or forbids, uh, forbids it being continued. So the most obvious example is the sacrificial system. Um, in Christ, we are no longer under the law, as Paul says in Romans 3. Rather, we uphold the law in faith and obedience to Christ. And so, it, 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 for example, the principle... That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what Leviticus is showing us. It says that. It says the blood must be shed. And it makes that point again and again. And it does it for the people. Literally, it did it for them by sight, by smell, by sound. Right? They understood that there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. Well, it is upheld both in the Old and in the New Testaments. In the Old, this was done through, the, through animal sacrifice. In the New, it is made once for all through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we, we still, that law is still being upheld today in Christ. And so we don't, so that's why we don't do it through, with, by the sacrificing of um, goats. But even if, so, so that's my case for, we, we need to pay attention to Leviticus 20. Our understanding of the covenants does not, you know, um, set, set us free from having to give an account for that. But even if we were to, to adopt that, the former hermeneutic, that well, we, we write it off unless it's brought up again in the new. Um, I've already demonstrated how that, that is the case, it's the case that with Paul and his use of arsenikoites in 1 Corinthians 6 9, as well as 1 Timothy 1 10, uh, that it is brought up again in the New Testament. It is, you can't escape it. Even if you want to escape the Old Testament, you're not going to escape it in the New Testament. So, so there's no getting around this. And I, I mentioned Matthew 19 last year, where Christ defines the, 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 the confines of marriage being between one man and one woman. And then the last I'll say to that is, is also, um, right, good luck in applying that principle consistently with everything else that's forbidden in, Levit- in Leviticus 20 that isn't explicitly reiterated in the New Testament. So we, we, as we read through Le- Leviticus 20, we had the prohibition of uh, um, the crime of bestiality. Well, that's not forbidden in the New Testament, but I don't think we'd, I'd have any difficulty convincing anybody that that is something that should not be practiced by anybody. Not, not, not just Christians. In God's world, that should not be taking place. And so we must be consistent. And so, that's, so the sin has been named. Uh, we've named the sin. We've identified it. God has done so very uh, capably. And uh, even, even for the, the sinner who's squeamishly trying to get around it, I, I, I hope that I've shown you that um, it, it requires just the, the shutting our eyes to what is plainly there. And then we move to shaming the sin. It says, both of them have committed an abomination. The word for abomination in the Hebrew, by the way, is toeva or toeba 
which is where we get in English that word taboo, toeba. And it's used to refer to something morally disgusting or an abhorrence which is detestable to God, especially used throughout Scripture in regard to idolatry. It's, 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 it's reserved for the oftentimes the severest penalties uh, that we can think of that, that, that are brought up. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, Deuteronomy 7.25, he says, The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it. For it is devoted to destruction. So that's, that's the kind of word that God reserves for this kind of sin. John Calvin commenting uh, specifically on 1 Corinthians 6.9 that we looked at. Uh, on that word that, is, that, that the ESV translates uh, homosexuality or men practicing homosexuality. Uh, Calvin here he writes, The fourth description of crime is the most abominable of all that monstrous pollution which was but too prevalent in Greece. I, I found it was just interesting. There's some commentators, they're not willing to actually use, say the word. Like, they'll describe it, but they're not willing to... I was trying to find how did they translate that word? Uh, and like, and how do we translate... Like, how, what word should we use in English? And a lot of them won't even use the word. That's how... Like, they don't want to touch it. Uh, many of the commentators, I, the older ones that I, I, I looked to, it was just unthinkable to, to them. If you find this kind of language to be over the top or unnecessarily harsh, then the truth is that you've been conditioned more by the present culture than you've been conditioned by the Word of God. And I, I, I say that as a rebuke, but again, as uh, just a, as a warning that I don't think any of you intentionally, I'm not claiming that any of you intentionally have gone out of your way for that to be the case. I'm just warning you that, that, is what's, that that's what happens when we're surrounded by these things and it becomes so normal. Proverbs 27, verse 6, As faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? My goal today is not... Um, to make to make enemies by speaking the truth, um, but to to extend the hand of friendship and reconciliation that is offered in Christ. So there's naming the shame, shame, sin, shaming the sin, and then killing the sin. It says they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. While many Christians today will likely have parted ways with me long before this point, uh, for those who would still be with me, and I, 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 when I speak many, I, I think for the most part, there, I, I'm sure some of you are hearing this, maybe this is the first time, and I'm challenging you, and you're, you're having a hard time hearing it. I'm sure some of you are here, and you're, I'm glad you're here. Um, but I also recognize I'm sort of preaching to the choir in this little group here. But I also know this, and I'm preaching this way because I know you don't, we don't just live in this little bubble alone. And you are in the world, and you are, like, you are surrounded by this stuff. And, you, um, and so we need to hear this, and know this, and be aware of this. And we're all, you're also surrounded by YouTube, and the Christian influences, and pastors, and teachers who are going to tell you different things that you're going to hear and many Christians today who would call themselves Christians will likely have parted ways with me at this point. They wouldn't, again, they wouldn't want to even touch Leviticus because it's the Old Testament. But for those who are still with me to this point, here's where the majority of dissent now comes. If, for whoever remains, here's like the last blow uh, from what would remain of the conservative evangelical church today. Many would say the civil laws 
where I only ever apply to Israel and cannot be applied in a principled sense. Of course, I'm not saying that we should one for one just take their laws and adopt them and, and, you know, and we're going to be literal Israelites. Um, but many, so I'm not saying that, and, and, but even with that explanation, to say that there's a place for the principle of the laws, that we to, learn, to be learned and observed and applied in our context, in our day, in our circumstances, in our, within our nation and society. That it cannot be applied in that in any general sense like that as either to any jurisdiction outside of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That, that was just for them at that time and that place. But again, this is not how God saw his law being applied in the Old Testament. I noted, in ver- we saw in verse 22 of chapter 20, later he explains, he says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. Why did he drive out that nation before them? For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. God, God, Israel was the arm of God's judgment upon the Canaanites for, for their practice of, of these detestable things. The standard of righteousness and justice which God calls his own people to is the exact same standard by which God judges the Gentile nations. He is not, a, he is not a partial. He shows no partiality. And so still, many Christians will agree that homosexual activity is, is, a, is a trespass against God's law deserving of eternal punishment in hell. Yet they believe that the God of the New Testament or the New Covenant is more gracious and patient than the God of the Old Covenant. And thereby, the death penalty regarding the various sexual perversions mentioned in, the, in Leviticus is no longer applicable within the civil, civil realm today. It has no place today because God, it's, we're, this is a period of grace. God is a God of grace now. And that was the Old Testament. It was all law. And not only is this blasphemous, and that it portrays God as being basically bipolar in, in his character, as if he is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Romans 1 actually explains that the removal of temporary restraint and judgment on sin, of sin in a society is a sign of God's wrath being poured out upon a people to their own destruction. In, in other words, when God doesn't judge, when he withholds the temporary judgments that, that are um, of, of a just society and everyone's left to do what is right in their own eyes, the Bible basically describes that that is an example of God pouring out his judgment and his wrath upon those people. And so while all sin is committed against God and separates us from him spiritually, making us enemies of God, not all sin is equally as foundationally destructive to the created order of God's world. Right? So the, the temporary consequences and harm of murdering someone in God's world. While we'll say uh, and, and, um, there is forgiveness for the sin of murder, there's going to be um, more severe consequences in the world uh, than, than, than other sins, such as this, uh, in, in this, the case of theft. So the laws of God reflect uh, this, um, this balance, or I guess you, you might call it. And unlike other ancient Near Eastern civilizations, in Israel, uh, in Israel, crimes of a religious nature or against family life always receive the strongest punishments. If you go through God's laws, any, anything that threatened essentially the family or, or the true religion, the true practice of, religion, of, of, of worship, always re, re, had the severest punishments. Whereas... Uh, and, it, and it's become this way in our society, but in the, again, in the uh, Near Eastern civilizations at that time, it would, would be contrasted where the laws of those peoples 
where the violations would result that were, uh, had an economic loss. Those would tend to be the most severe punishments at, at the, the, that place in that time. Biblical law consistently places more value on life, on human life, and, and on life in general than on material or possessions. It, there is value in material and possessions, but you see in the severity of the punishments that there, that, uh, how serious God takes violations against his image bearers. So God's punishment ascribed to homosexuality in the Old Testament was not arbitrary to the natural world the Israelites lived in and in which we find ourselves living in today. And our laws in Canada used to reflect this. Again, some of you maybe are old enough to know this. I don't know. Um, But it was up until 1969 when same-sex... Activity. So we're not talking about marriage. We're just same-sex sexual activity in private between consenting adults was decriminalized in Canada. Before then, before 1969, it was a a crime. Again, I I just want to, for me, I just want to sit here and, and just reveal my cards, my age. Like, I, um... What I, well, what I described earlier, being in the melting pot and being a frog in a boiling pot, like that, I was not raised in that kind of environment. That seems so foreign to me. And I was also raised, and I've been raised in a church culture where it's like that, where it, it, we're kind of ashamed that, that our country would ever do something like that, that, it, that there's, no, there's no foundation to make such a law on. And yet again, we've, I've just gone over uh, the biblical case for why it ought to be. We believe ourselves, and I'm speaking of our nation in general, we believe ourselves to be wiser and more just than the creator and the judge of heaven and earth now. And if Canadians do not repent and bow their knee to the reign of King Jesus, to the point of our repentance ultimately bearing fruit in our legislation and in the the people that we, we vote into office in our nation, our nation can expect the same fate as the nations who set themselves against God in ages past. I don't see any. I don't. I don't have see any reason why to believe why that would won't be shouldn't be the case. We have example after example of that taking place of God's judging the nations, um, time and time again. Of course, in a temporary sense, and of course, and then we're going to return back to. Uh, um, Matthew chapter 25, in which this ultimately is all pointing us and culminating in, in the, the eternal judgment of all nations. And some, now, some would say the principles of the civil laws, again, I'm um, oh, sorry, I, I misprinted that there. And so, again, Maybe I've depressed you at this point. But this is good news. The reason I'm doing this is to share that this is good news to all who come here today or who maybe all, and again, or all that you might bring this to or people in your life. This is good news to all who have come here today who are enslaved and condemned in the lusts of your flesh. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this involves, this truth, knowing the truth, involves not only knowing the truth about Jesus, but about being set free to tell the truth about your sin. About... um, about your transgressions, about, about uh, the, the bonds and the enslavement and the, the shackles that weigh you down and the guilt and the shame that is associated with our sin. To tell the truth about what that is and thereby, and to see it for what it is and thereby to see the truth 
of where your redemption was purchased by the blood of Christ, who was surely put to death with the blood of every believer being counted upon his head as Leviticus required on on your own head. And again, this is... Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9... I read that list, do not be deceived, neither the the unrighteous uh, will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what the men and women who rage against God today would have me refuse to offer you today. Deliverance and life. The power of God for salvation to everyone who confesses their sins for what they are and receives the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to be clear, the most pressing need of our nation and of our churches and our homes is not, it's, it, the most pressing is not the revoking of the so-called conversion therapy ban. But first and foremost of the spiritual conversion, of your spiritual conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we need is an outpouring of the Spirit of God through the authoritative proclamation of saving life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for lost sinners. Our charge from God is to call all men and women and boys and girls to forsake all sin and perversion of the, of the goodness of God. And whether it be sexual or um, uh, or communal, or, or, or in regards to your relationship with the church and in your worship and how you've treated God. To repent of all sin and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be conformed into His image and righteousness. Not by coercion, but by the internal power of His Spirit and His Word. And the Spirit of God must and will continue to expose and convict the world of sin and righteousness as the gospel is proclaimed, inviting sinners of all shapes and all sizes and of all kinds of deceptions and perversions to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ and to follow Him as Lord and be saved from the wrath to come. And while repentance is going to look different and require biblical and wise counsel to be applied to, to, any, to the given situation or mess that you have created or found yourself in, the way forward towards any form of restoration to who God has called you to be must always first begin with confessing your sin. Humbling yourself before God and being reconciled to Him in Christ. And so I'll close with Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. He calls out and says, This is the Lord. As He says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live to be converted from the way in which you're going to turn back to turn back he says from your evil ways for why will you die choose life let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the gift of your word and of your law upon it we meditate day and night lord we love you. we 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 love you and we, because, and we love your law because it reflects your, your justice and your righteousness and your holiness and your love.
Lord, I thank you for the clarity of your word and that we, don't, we aren't left blind and wandering and feeling ourselves towards the truth or, uh, and towards being uh, set free or towards um, some kind of deliverance or salvation that the, the different religions of this world will, will, make, will seek to, to conjure up. But God, you have revealed You've revealed our sin for what it is and you've exposed and you've shed the light of Christ upon it. And by doing so, you've shown us and you've revealed the way to salvation. You've revealed the way to be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, may we not... Uh, again, I pray for boldness for your church today, that we would not withhold the hand and the invitation of salvation in Christ to a, to the lost, to a lost and weary world, and specifically to a, to to those who are ensnared and entrapped in the sin of homosexuality, men and women alike. That we would not withhold. the glorious gift, an invitation of your salvation. But that we would also be, and in this time, that we would count the cost. And that we would know that for many, that it, will, it will not be seen as a gift. And right now, the, our, our own government has legally... Um, Condemned it as not only not being a gift, but as being harmful and criminal. And so, Lord, again, this is a time in which we need courage. And we need your spirit to give us wisdom. That we would be uh, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And how we bring the gospel to bear in, in, these, in this dark corner uh, of of the sin that the man uh, seeks to hide and bury himself in. So God, we ask these things again because uh, we have hope, because we know that you call us to them, and that uh, with your help, uh, we, we expect and trust that we will see uh, your hand of salvation at work uh, in the in the lives of those that you bring to us and the opportunities that we're given. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing um, Psalm 33 together now. As the Lord has instructed us, let's respond in Psalm, uh, Psalm 33. I'm going to read verse 1 to 5. I'll invite you to stand with me. As I said, I'll read verse 1 to 5, and then we'll begin singing uh, in verse 6, uh, using uh, the ash grove, or the Master has come. <clears throat> 